Hey, everybody, this is Patriot here. Now, before we begin the show, I just want to say a few words with regard to the ongoing de-dollarization process and the looming financial crash that we're all expecting will unfold in the next weeks and months. Now, those of you who've been listening to my show are very well informed about the imminent death of the petrodollar. We've seen and tracked the developments all along the way from the expansion of the BRICS trade alliance to the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. And certainly, we've only just begun to see the consequences of this fiat debt prison economy collapsing under the weight of its own fraud. This Ponzi scheme has been ongoing since we were taken off the gold standard back in 1971. And the funding of our debt became entirely based upon treasury bonds that are fundamentally useless because at that point, they became no longer interchangeable for real constitutional money which of course is gold and silver. And now fast forward over 50 years later, and we're in a situation where the big Wall Street banks are looking at 800 billion in unrealized treasury bond losses with derivative exposure accelerants that have created a financial time bomb that cannot be diffused. Now is the time to roll over your 401k and your IRA into precious metals, Gold Co., has over 5,000 five-star reviews on multiple different websites. Go and do your research, folks. I partnered with this company because they simply are the best in the business, incredible customer service, very competitive market prices. Everyone that I've sent in the direction of GoldCo has had rave reviews, and I want you folks to be the next ones to experience the peace of mind of what it feels like to know that all of your hard-earned wealth that you've acquired over many, many years of working is going to be safe as this financial time bomb explodes. I'm not a financial advisor, but you don't have to be in order to see the reality of what we're facing right now on the economic front. All right, everybody, enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. God bless and Godspeed. Patriot out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Patriot Underground. Today is January 27th, 2024. Thank you so much for joining me, folks, to discover the truth beneath the surface. As always, I really do appreciate everybody out there for taking the time to listen. Now, today, as you can see, I have my good friend S.G. Anon coming back to the show. This man has been a thought leader in this movement since he emerged in the summer of two, uh, 2022, I believe it was. And ever since then, he's just been providing top-notch intel and analysis. He is a gentleman that really doesn't require an introduction. Uh, he's one of the most respected voices in the truth movement. It's always an honor to have him back on my show. So, SG, welcome. Great to see you again. Thank you for having me back, Patriot. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, you know, we were chatting for a few minutes before we started the recording, and I said to SG that a good place to begin our discussion would be the border invasion situation that we've been seeing rapidly unfold in Texas. And, of course, this all started with the relatively small area of Eagle Pass. I, I can't remember how many square miles. I want to say it was like 50 square miles, a relatively small area, but definitely a hot spot for all of these illegals coming over the border. So just a quick recap, we know that the Biden administration gave uh, Greg Abbott an ultimatum, essentially 24 hours to remove the razor wire. Uh, the Biden administration or the fake Biden administration, I should say, is threatening Sanctions. I read somewhere that uh, they're going to be pausing liquid nat uh, liquefied natural gas development opportunities and targeting the Texas economy. 
Uh, we also have heard that, or I've heard from certain individuals who have sources telling me that Biden has called up two uh, military divisions to move out this weekend. I haven't actually substantiated that. I, I don't know if you have any information on that, SG. You can comment in a moment. But we know that uh, 25 Republican uh, governors, I think that was the, my last count, the last time I checked, have signaled support for Texas. There are 10 states, I believe, that have sent National Guard troops for support. We also know that there is a trucker convoy headed to Texas to support with stopping this illegal invasion. And uh, of course, Greg Abbott has been defiant and he's made it very clear that he's prepared for a conflict with the feds. He actually came out and said that. So it looks very likely, SG, that we could be looking at some sort of a showdown in the very near future, perhaps a kinetic one, we, we don't know. But certainly this is a situation that could very rapidly lead to state secession. Civil war is trending right now, as I'm sure you're aware, on uh, just about every social media platform. So it seems like we're getting very close to the precipice moment, this necessary scare event that uh, that Q spoke of. And, you know, I think along those same lines, we should also point out that Q told us that there would be no civil war. I believe it was post uh, 1664. But I suspect that this situation may very well contribute to the precipice and the scare event that we were told to expect. So having said all that, let me turn it over to you. And why don't you give us your take on what's going on in Texas right now, asserting their authority to defend their border and the response of the fake Biden administration? Where do you see this headed? You know, I'm really glad, actually, that we started with this topic because because it has been such a such a focus over the last you know recent days and and you know going on a week now about the issue of states' rights and the issue of constitutional balance here in the United States of America. And just before we get started into the into the discussion here, I do believe that there is a broader plan at play. I do believe in some in some ways this is being allowed uh, on the ground by good actors who are in that broad-reaching worldwide military operational community. Uh, who understand how things need to be played out at very, very high levels of society to ensure that we can reshape the governmental structures of the United States of America back uh, to the to the original structures, right? The the constitutional republic, the common law, um, you know, judiciary system, you know, and most notably with things like grand juries and, and community levers of power being given their authority back after they've been stripped of that through a bureaucratic administrative state. So while I understand that there is a lot of fear. There is a lot of concern. There is a lot of mistrust. There is a lot of distrust. Uh, and quite frankly, there's a lot of cynicism that has now emerged, uh, you know, pertaining to this idea of Q and this idea of a broader reaching plan. And why would these things be allowed to occur, et cetera? Um, and so let's I want to I want to highlight and start with that. Why would these things be allowed to occur uh, in the fashion that they've occurred? Well, what are the objectives here? The objectives are to eliminate coyote networks throughout the world. The objectives are to eliminate reception and transition points for human human trafficking. Uh, and that includes every other smuggling that goes right along with that. Right. If you could smuggle a person into and out of a place, you can smuggle anything into and out of that place. So you're talking about weapons, blood, organs, uh, pathogens, diseases, et cetera, that are all also being passed through these same junctional pathways. Mm -hmm. So that's that's one objective. We have another objective, which is to. Uh, remove the non-state militarized assets out of various locations of power in the world who are acting essentially as rogue militias uh, enforcing, you know, some sort of, of um, 
you know, control over a particular territory. The Mexican cartels are pr probably the best example of that, that you have a number of very powerful gangs uh, that are in Southeast Asia and in Central and Eastern China uh, that have had control of various city undergrounds for a long time. And, the, and they are just as equivalent in power, if not more so, especially as it pertains to funding um, as the Mexican cartels. It is through these very organized, large scale gangs in China that a lot of the Chinese organ harvesting that comes from the northwest of the country out of the Three Gorges Dam area actually makes it to port cities uh, on the Pacific region. So a lot of these assets have also been moved uh, out of that area of the world. They've essentially been paid to come to the United States and invade the United States. But eventually that places them, uh, if we if we appreciate the fact that the military will 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 be the only way, I think, out of this particular crisis. And we'll get to that here in just a minute. But if we if we appreciate that that is a sort of a predetermined endpoint, and Q tells us military is the only way, then those military forces of the United States of America will be handling these types of uh, actors, right, sort of in a Red Dawn Rising style moment. And I've said this a number of times on air. I do believe we're going to have a Red Dawn Rising moment. President Xi told us last year in no uncertain terms that the destiny of mankind moving forward would depend on whether or not the people of the United States and the people of China can live together peacefully and properly. So that tells me that relationship is going to be tested in a very powerful and significant way. And I think this is part of that test. But we remove these non-state militarized actors out of those areas of the world. What does that open up? Well, that opens up lawful command and control right down to the community level, level excuse me, level of power. It offers the ability to free different governments. Right. We just recently saw Lloyd Austin um, in the Mediterranean. With his, and he was supposedly visiting individuals on the Gerald R. Ford aircraft carrier, and he had his neck uh, very opened up. He had he sort of went out of his way, I think, optically to show that the button was undone at the top of his shirt. There was absolutely no tie, and mm. so this was a freed moment. A deal has been done moment, and so that is occurring with different governments around the world, and has been happening now for 36 months. El Salvador was one of the first to act upon that new freedom uh, and engage a massive lockdown on uh, organized crime. They used the El Salvadoran military to essentially arrest all members of organized uh, cartel gangs and things of that nature, and they have made that country that much safer. So that is another objective of this particular uh, operation. Well, what's the third objective? The third objective is to highlight foreign, foreign, foreign funding and interference in the United States, in the safety of the Republic of the United States of America, right? A foreign assault on the United States in the form of an organized invasion. Who's paying for all of the migration? Well, that would be your DNC, your far left lobby, your transnational billionaires, many of whom bank with organizations like JP Morgan, Bank of England, Bank of Switzerland, UBS, uh, Credit Suisse, Bank of America, Citibank, Wells Fargo. These very, very large banks that are transnationally operating, some of them headquartered in the U.S., some of them headquartered in Europe, all of them part of that central banking model, uh, right along those governmental central banks that do the collection on the back end for those public works and those governmental uh, operations and levers of power. So if we're going to move into a period where we have to do a number of different things, we have to break the social compact, the social contract between the federal government and the United States of America. We've been building up a period of time in the last 36 months that points that points us to exactly that reality. As a matter of fact, Governor Abbott used that as the basis for declaring total state sovereignty uh, and 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 control in this particular issue because it is afforded to the states the right of self-defense if the federal government refuses to basically do its job. 
So we've now done that. So we've broken the contract of 1871. We've broken the contract, the U.S. Constitution, Inc., document that afforded a lot of the same language but kept out some of the spirit of the language of the prior document and omitted entirely a couple of amendments that are important, and we'll come to that here in a minute. So we've now done that, and we're also in the same vein, at the same time, we're fleshing out this idea of states' rights. What is sovereignty as a state? What is what is the union of states, and what is it supposed to represent? It is supposed to represent essentially an agreement uh, made you know, almost in name only uh, between a number of different miniaturized nations and a broader union that exists to hold those miniaturized nations together in the same playpen. And so everyone gets along very nicely, but we all do or do our own thing. And we reserve near exclusivity rights to do our own thing with the exception of agreements that we have had nationally. So that's how the Republican system is supposed to work, right? It protects the individual, but it amplifies the collective good. So now that we're moving into that period of time where we've broken this, what are we seeing? We're seeing this back and forth between the federal government and the state's power. We're seeing essentially threats coming from the Manchurian administration and the state's power. Well, who paid for the Manchurian administration? That would be the same actors that paid for the migration and the invasion now happening at the southern border. Those same banking systems, those same large cartel groups, those same governmental Mm -hmm. funds and organized monies. And so what are we tying together? We're tying together a foreign assault on the United States of America in a very real form that's also causing a humanitarian catastrophe. And we're tying that nicely and neatly in with this idea that the Manchurian installation paid for by those same foreign actors will attempt to federalize or will attempt to take military control of the situation, thereby unleashing the military forces within the United States borders in violation of posse comitatus. And so what is happening here is the the actualization of the real shadow power that was instituted in our nation on 923-2001 by the traitorous 43rd president of the United States is at hand. The movement of that shadow control from the background into the foreground to be on public display for all to see and just how antithetical and just how anti-American that particular movement truly deeply is is being is is coming now into an acceptance in the public space and it's leading a tremendous amount of the public to begin to understand that the idea of secession the idea of separation from this type of um yes uh, essentially this overblown locus of power and control is really how we want to move forward as a society we don't want to be uh in this sort of dynamic basically what amounts to an abusive relationship with the U.S. government. We want to be in a symbiotic relationship with natural law and allow government only the necessary authority it needs to preserve law and order. And that's a whole other discussion for another time. So all of these things are being tied together through this operation. But it is also very important to note that with every group that comes into the United States of America, all of whom are equipped with smartphones, we see all We hear all. We know exactly where they're going and we know who's buying them and we know who's selling them. And we're we're watching those individuals and where they take them. We're tracking and tracing the entire network of global organized crime uh, here in the United States and how this is paid for, funded and facilitated and what entities, what organizations, what institutions, what shipping yards, what vehicle supply groups, what what large scale transportation administrations and, and companies are doing. And, and which ones uh, are, are part and party to this entire operation worldwide. That's happening in real time. That's one of the reasons we needed Space Force. This level of data collection and battlefield reconnaissance has never been attempted before. 
This is a worldwide operation that needed aggregation and digestion capabilities that did not exist prior to the establishment of Space Force, except in secret space programs of the United States military, notably the Air Force and the Navy. And so now we're in a position to expand the use of that very capable technological prowess and move move us into a period where we can iron out and wipe out organized crime in other nations, human and organized trafficking networks here at home, and show the entire planet who paid for the invasion of the United States of America. Oh, sorry. I was uh, muted there. I was just listening to your response. Absolutely. And and I agree with you completely. I do have uh, a couple of follow-up questions on this. Um, do you think that, well, first of all, let me start with this. Um, why why now? Why did Greg Abbott not do this years ago? Because I've seen a lot of folks make comments along those lines. And it seemed to me, and uh, you can clarify this, but it seemed to me that it, it may have been uh, your suggestion that this is part of the White Hat playbook to provoke this type of a showdown at the border. Uh, or, you know, perhaps maybe I got that wrong and, and it is a, a deep state operation because, you know, we know that civil war, provoking a civil war any way that they could has always been one of the primary objectives of the enemy. So it's this is a situation where I think a lot of folks are curious, you know, why did Abbott act now? Was this uh, largely, is this being largely driven by the White Hats or is this being driven more by the deep state and allowed to happen by the White Hats for a lot for a lot of the reasons that you just outlined? And that ultimately, really, SG, do you think that when when the rubber meets the road, you've got all of these National Guard troops that are amassing more and more are on the way? And it, it appears as if Biden is uh, sending forces there to have some sort of a showdown. Do you think that this gets kinetic? And if so, what are the implications of that? Because it seems to me like that that could spiral out of control very, very quickly. Well, so let's take the question, you know, in a couple of different parts. Right. Uh, the first part of the question, you know, talking about the White Hats being you know, in control and things of that nature. There is an element of control here, right? There is an element of control being exerted at the very highest levels of U.S. military combatant command. But U.S. military combatant command can be extremely compartmentalized. You can actually you know, boil it down really to between seven and 11 different generals that can run this entire worldwide operation. Uh, and, and that level of responsibility, I can't even begin to fathom that. So there is an element of control that is to be had. But what does that control yield? It yields exposure. It yields uh, espionage movement from the background into the foreground. So they're moving different levers right now at the military command and control level, which will iron out military brass. Right. They, people won't be able to pick a side if Biden attempts to federalize the guard. We will have to see different commanders choose who they're going to follow and how this is going to happen. And I don't believe that that's going to go kinetic. And I'll tell you why. In this process. We are now about five weeks away from the Trump trials. I think in that five-week period of time, we would be capable of ratcheting up the tension in this narrative tremendously without going as far as to attempt to activate the military and, and essentially seize control of military forces that are operating right now at the behest of their lawful state governors, right? You have different governors that have moved National Guard troops on purpose uh, within the purview and power of their state authorities as defined by their state constitutions. Uh, and they've sent some of these units to Texas for the obvious mission to secure the border. Right. So I think we can move through that period of time where we don't necessarily see that happen. 
And once we get to the Trump trials, that makes a lot of sense to me that March moving into the fiscal new year in particular uh, worldwide and moving into the spring season would be the time where you would see those types of desperation moves uh, to come from this particular enemy. Now, you know, the, again, this is just sort of hypothetical speculation, but it's based on patterns and how they tend to operate at a weeks long or months long uh, time frame. Right. A lot of this stuff is gamed out for a very long time. And right. so you've got the Trump trials right smack in the middle of that season. Well, what are those trials going to highlight? We're going to highlight that the commander in chief of the United States may very well be the wrong one publicly, <laughs> optically in front of everyone. And so this generates a constitutional crisis that further catalyzes and further destabilizes and really destroys the ability of warlords inside the military industrial complex to hide. They cannot hide themselves when they're made to choose between one commander in chief or the other. And the entire eyes of the nation are on everyone and how they respond. Right. And it won't take very long for people to realize who is for and who against the peoples of the uh, who is against the peoples of the United States. So in that way, I don't think that you will see a civil war scenario break out. I think the information age has actually circumvented that possibility. But we walk a razor's edge. And that's what's so very important to note about operations of this magnitude worldwide. We are walking a tightrope that is a millimeter in width and we cannot get anything wrong. Right. We have to move through and balance the sentiment, the patience, the strength of the American people. Uh, against the needs of the rest of the world to move things around in such a fashion that these these schools at the very top can't leave the United States and go hide somewhere. Uh, and that's that's a big po portion of this operation is freeing up all of the different honeypots, all of the different safe houses and safe zones that they would otherwise have available to them. A tremendous amount of that is is tied back into what's happening in the African subcontinent right now, uh, because that's been a hideout for various warlords and bioterrorists and large scale depopulationists. Right. You know, what we would call the global elite for a very long time. Uh, the same is true of the, the South Pacific Islands, Papua New Guinea, a big nation uh, that that really has very little, if any, true extradition policy. And so we had to go around the rest of the planet and begin to destabilize this locus of control. And it has different nodes that have had to be removed prior to us actually dropping the hammer here in the United States of America, which will reverberate around the rest of the world. So I believe that we're into that time right now. As a matter of fact, I think Joe Biden is slow walking, is Judas goading the entire globalist community and most of the military industrial complex in the United States Pentagon uh, out into the open for everyone to see. Absolutely brilliant. And I love how you said that the information age has really circumvented the possibility of civil war. I, I completely agree uh, with that statement. And that's actually a profound statement that we could probably discuss in, in some detail. But I'll move on. You did mention uh, the election uh, and, and certainly the Trump trial, everything that we've got uh, looming ahead of us. And I think maybe it, it'll make sense to discuss a little bit of what we saw recently uh, with the GOP primary. And uh, certainly, you know, New Hampshire and Iowa, we saw uh, Ramaswamy, I think that's how you pronounce it, Vivek, I'll, I, I just call him Vivek, and, uh, and DeSantis uh, both drop out of the race and endorse Trump. And I've been told that uh, Vivek essentially ran a shadow campaign for Trump with the objective of red-pilling mainline conservatives, which seems to me very likely, given the ferocity with which he attacked the deep state, particularly Nikki Haley, who is their latest chosen puppet. And even after she lost New Hampshire, saying it was a must win going into it, she didn't drop out, which suggests to me that she is betting on Trump being ousted from the race, presumably 
due to a guilty verdict in this upcoming trial. And I think we can maybe discuss that in, in, in some detail uh, as to what you see transpiring in the trial a little bit later in the show if we get to it. But Nikki Haley uh, is losing support fast. Reed Hoffman, who's the billionaire Democrat donor who's been funding her campaign, he saw the writing on the wall. He suspended his financial support. Uh, so there were a lot of, you know, very interesting uh, dramatic moments, I think, associated with the primaries. I, I do think overall that they're a bit of a sideshow, uh, given everything that's going on and the landscape of uh, this looming election. But uh, I wanted to get your take on uh, what we saw transpire. Do you uh, agree with the assessment that uh, that Vivek was uh, working with Trump? It seems very likely he's going to get a, uh, a seat at the table, perhaps in, in Trump's cabinet. And uh, then we can maybe pivot into what you think is likely to to transpire in the trial and then subsequently the election. Well, you know, I think the issue with Vivek is really a fascinating one. Um, here's a guy. He comes basically from out of nowhere. He's from the biosciences division of society, uh, which gives me a little bit of pause, but also shows that the man is is educated and is willing to you know entertain new ideas. And that's important. And he does exactly what you just said. He, he runs this campaign. It sort of runs parallel, but in strange opposition in some ways, but not in really much opposition in other ways to the Trump campaign. Um, a lot of the same similar sort of message, but delivered in a cooler tone, uh, a more balanced intellectual tone, probably with great appeal to the academic community, especially. Um, and so and then, you know, in response to the Iowa results, he does the what we would ostensibly believe to be the patriotic thing. And he bows out. Um, you know, my jury is out on a lot of these folks really until we get much, much closer to time because it's always in the closing acts of a particular phase of operations that you see what is truly at play with the enemy. The last cards are always the best. And as, as it pertains to folks like Vivek and DeSantis and, and Haley, even for that matter, I think that in some ways you've got uh, operational significance that is at play. In other words, some sort of coordinated, uh, broader level of knowledge for, for a broader purpose. And I think in other ways, especially with Vivek, you probably have a little bit of that American patriotism um, that's driving a lot of that. But perhaps you're not you know, aware of a broader or a keener mission. Um, I have an issue with Vivek's funding and in his background, and I have an issue with Casey DeSantis and her funding and who she works for and how these monies may affect these individuals uh, at that political campaign level. And I'm just withholding my overall conclusion until I see more about how that particularly plays out. What I find absolutely incredible uh, about the ending of the DeSantis campaign, especially, and I'd like to talk about that for a second, is the fact that this occurred immediately leading up to the New Hampshire primary, which absolutely makes no sense. Um, if you are a political candidate and you're sticking in the race after after an initial primary event where you didn't do so hot, um, what in the world would drive one? Uh, what 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 strategist would be able to convince one to drop out 48 hours prior to the next vote where you could do better? I mean, and, and the possibility remains that the uh, the narrative does change in between these types of votes, even though the passage of time uh, isn't all that much. But instead, Ron DeSantis decides in the you know hours, the days leading up to the New Hampshire primary, that he's going to go ahead and drop out as well. And so this reeks of a counterintelligence operation to me because there's no sensible reason for that. And Ron DeSantis, R.D., I think is very is symbolic of uh, Republican and Democrat no more. You know, we are now at the point where we are at we the people, the party of we the people, which is President Trump's Republican Party or version of it and the party of the globalist deep state agenda that is anti-American and quite frankly, anti-human. 
Um, and so the ending of the RD campaign uh, leading up to the New Hampshire primary, I find that very fascinating. Mm-hmm. And Q tells us multiple times there is no R versus D. This is not R versus D. It's not about the, the two parties. Uh, Drain the Swamp is about much more than Washington, D.C., for example. Um, and the, the idea of a two-party system here in the United States, at least for the last half century, has been almost a complete and total farce. Uh, even President Nixon told us about this in the early 1970s. So I find it incredibly fascinating that that occurred. And then we saw President Trump win New Hampshire with such a powerful statement Then he goes on and he wins Nevada because there's no competition. Uh, it's my understanding that he's also winning in South Carolina, which is Nikki's home state. Mm-hmm. And there are very large and powerful voices of mainstream, what you would call Main Street America uh, cultural influence that are essentially crying from the rooftops about Nikki Haley's involvement with the military industrial complex, which seeks to sacrifice American lives and other lives around the world needlessly for 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 only profit and gain. Um, so this whole process, this whole primary process, regardless of what Vivek's role overall in it has been, and regardless really of what DeSantis's role overall has been, it has served to destroy the idea of traditional politics here in America, and we had to have that, or we were never going to be able to move forward. I absolutely agree with you, and you know, I I did mention the uh, the upcoming trial. You had mentioned it a little bit, I think, uh, in my last question. I brought it up, so I let's why don't we drill into that for a moment in a little bit more detail? You know, the, this whole idea of, of the upcoming trial, the immunity question. There's been a lot of speculation as to whether the trial is even going to go forward. There are some people who believe, yes, I'm definitely in that camp for a lot of different reasons uh, that I've outlined for my audience. And I, uh, I do believe that you are in agreement with me, but certainly you can indicate when you, when you answer. But uh, there are folks out there who don't think it's going to go forward. There are those of us who think it will. Um, some folks think that we're going to see military intervention, uh, you know, overt military intervention prior to that trial, or perhaps even uh, because we've we've also got the consideration of the Supreme Court and this issue of the immunity question and whether or not they're going to rule favorably in terms of you know where where President Trump is coming from. So why don't we discuss that for just a moment? How do you think, uh, as far as the uh, the Supreme Court, how do you think that they're going to rule on this this immunity question ultimately? And do you anticipate this trial moving forward? as I do, as a vehicle to expose the election fraud, this this sting operation. We've talked, I think, before about the announcement that uh, Trump and his lawyers have made that they're going to be presenting classified documents, which to me indicates directly that they're going to be using military evidence to expose the fact that the election was stolen because the January 6th trials loom entirely on the question of whether or not the election was stolen. So uh, what's your viewpoint on that? You know, I think my viewpoint entirely on on this overall issue is that the Trump trials will be the vector by which we change the judiciary's framework forever um, to allow us accountability into the future, to hold executives, to hold members of Congress, members of the bureaucracy, what whatever portion of the bureaucracy may remain on the other side of this accountable for their actions while they're in office. Because if we have no way to hold them accountable while they're in office, then we have a, a contract that is based purely on trust. And unfortunately, we have witnessed that trust weaponized against we the people in every conceivable way to the greatest depth possible in the last 150 years, um, especially. And, and we could take that discussion back really all of the way to the founding of the nation. So 
the issue of presidential immunity is actually going to be in file 70. Um, it's my belief that we are going to move forward despite the presentation of powerful and compelling and totally determinative evidence on the part of President Trump. We're going to move forward with the elimination of presidential immunity from uh, the docket, and it's going to be elevated to a Supreme Court decision. I think that Supreme Court decision on presidential immunity is going to tie into a number of different national security cases that are also moving through the system and through the courts. So and, and all of them sort of revolve around the same overall theme, which is power and control of the United States military and the United States armed forces. Um, that's a major national security issue. Now, what I find really compelling about this whole process, um, Patriot, to tell you the truth, is even though that even though that sounds a little bit you know, negative on its face and it doesn't necessarily you know, strike encouragement and, and hardship into everyone out there listening, you have to appreciate that we have to go back and we have to hold the 43rd president, the 44th president, other members of those administrations and those bureaucracies, many of whom are still in power in some way, shape or form, accountable for the actions that they took and the things that they did. Right. Both of our prior presidents prior to President Trump uh, committed vast, large scale war crimes, completely destabilized and destroyed entire cultures. And so there has to be uh, a reckoning for that that has to be allowable under the law. But the other thing that happens with these Trump trials is the presentation of evidence puts into the public domain reality that the U.S. Department of Defense is going to be faced with. And that reality, because of good citizen journalism and because of excellent uh, uh, interconnectivity on the digital space and the, in this information age that we have, uh, is going to sink into the public consciousness. And I think we are going to have a constitutional crisis based on the presentation of some of this evidence, regardless of the verdict in the case, which I believe is going to be against President Trump and be elevated to the Supreme Court on appeal. So the Pentagon uh, the, the saying in the military, of course, is that, you know, you hurry up and wait. The, the gears of command and control grind very slowly. The bureaucracy is always at play. And that is very, very true in the military forces of the United States. And so there is always a review period. There is always a long term period to evaluate some sort of claim, some sort of uh, of, um, you know, petition or redress for grievance of things like of things of that nature within uh, the military brass. And so with the presentation of the evidence coming in these Trump trials, I can foresee very easily the likelihood that a number of veterans, both active and former in the United States of America, uh, members of those armed services now and past, are going to put pressure on military command in a public way that will ignite the public uh, uh, awareness of what's going on to declare their loyalty to the proper commander in chief. And with that will come a review period from the Pentagon. This is a hypothetical, but I think it's extremely possible in a, as a way to play this out. And that review period is usually anywhere from 90 to 120 days. Well, 120 days from March the 4th, 2024 is July 4th. And so what I find absolutely incredible is we could have a review period where the U.S. military at its end concludes that, in fact, they do have the wrong commander in chief and they need to read in the last lawful commander in chief, which would cause a crisis for the ages here in the United States that has never been seen before. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it it, it harkens directly to that the prophecy of two presidents that we've heard so much about. Well, let's switch gears a little bit here, SG. There's a lot of ground that I want to cover. Uh, and I really wanted to hear your reaction. I haven't listened to a lot of your recent interviews. I wanted to hear your reaction to the recently discovered tunnels under the uh, Chabad headquarters in New York City. And as we saw the details, they got pretty horrific. It was 
shocking enough, I think, for a lot of people out there just to see the the uh, chaos that was ensuing there. But then once the story really started to flesh out, we saw a bloodstained mattress. We saw children's toys and high chairs they had down there. And my understanding is that these tunnels connect to another structure about, I think it was something like 300 yards away or something along those lines where a child rape is being investigated that took place, I think, a few months prior. And then just recently, we saw the Chicago rapper who goes by Famous Richard. He released a video of him being thrown out of there after trying to investigate for himself, which is no doubt red pilling a lot of people. So it seems to me that this story has multiple implications in terms of exposing both the existence and the horrific realities of these underground tunnels. And of course, we're seeing it being exposed all around the world, specifically in Israel and Gaza. And we can talk about that perhaps a little bit later in the show. But this was the first time, in, 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 as far as I know, that we saw a very public story about these the existence of these tunnels right here in America and in New York City, of all places. And, you know, it raises the fundamental question or the fundamental issue in my mind. And this is a related topic, I guess, of Judaism, really, being hijacked by the Khazars, as we know it was, and how this truth is going to be effectively conveyed to the masses. Because certainly a story like this, when it breaks, it doesn't look good for Jewish people in general. So I wanted to get your reaction to this story. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm not suggesting that it's, I'm suggesting just the opposite, that it's not the Jews that are responsible, but rather the Khazars that hijack their religion. That's always been my viewpoint. But I want to hear your reaction to this story, how you view the significance of what was discovered and brought into the light in terms of exposing this evil that we've long known has been perpetrated on our children beneath the surface. Well, what I find absolutely amazing about this, Patriot, is that this event occurred on January the 8th into January the 9th of this year, uh, this unearthing of the Shabbat Lubavitch Lodge there on 770, Building 770 in, in New York City. And three days prior to that, on January the 6th of 2024, a website was created, uh, and it was a an advertisement-only website. It very much looked like a spam site. And emblazoned on the homepage, which was the only page on the site, was the was the text in very, very large, very bold format, white against a purple background that said, "Come, uh, see, come take our tunnels tours or tunnel tour under Building 770 Shabbat Lubavitch." And so. That reeks of a counterintelligence operation at the highest levels, and this was a narrative seed that was placed purposefully at that point in time for a reason. Um, I imagine that patriot forces, patriotic forces and actors at that very high level of military intelligence collection uh, and data aggregation have been aware of this particular lodge and those nefarious activities occurring there and other places in the United States of America where this occurs for a very long time. So the ability to, you know, blow this out into the citizen journalism space is just a matter of delivery system. And we got the right place in the right time uh, with individuals exposed down there for this to happen. So what this has done is it's done a couple of different things. It has highlighted the idea uh, that there is a an association of very, very dark occultism that ties to a group of individuals that represent themselves as ultra orthodox uh, Kabbalistic Jews and and so that's that has now been seeded out into the public narrative space. And we've heard we've heard very, very little from other Shabbat Lubavitch lodges 
around the United States of America and frankly around the world. I think there's over 115 of them. Um, in regards to this, I've not seen a denunciation come out yet. I've not seen a formal distancing uh, optically from that. So that tells me um, that it, it tells me that there may be um, some hesitancy to do that, perhaps because they don't want to draw more attention to that idea, but maybe also perhaps they, because they're complicit in similar activities. We really don't know. What we do know and what we need to highlight is that this is not at all representative of the vast majority of Judaism. And I have a number of Jewish friends personally in my own social sphere and have for a very long time just because of the academic uh, pursuits that I've taken up in, in days past who are uh, who completely believe that the the idea that there has been infiltration uh, within to their their system and within to their teachings because they have witnessed their youth as well affected by this um, what they call the usurpation. Right. And so um it has brought into attention in a big way this balance of narrative that has to be achieved. What is the difference between being hateful towards a group versus just telling the truth about what occurred here? Uh, if this occurred in a Freemason lodge, this would also look very, very bad for other Mason lodges, right? And we know based on Kathy O'Brien's testimony that this and much more have occurred in different blue lodges of the Masonic order. Um, and this is not, you know, that's not reflective of all Masons, right? So that's the balance in this, in this entire discussion. The infiltration at the top of the Catholic Church is not reflective of the Catholic community around the world, most of whom, uh, are, are quite in, uh, at enmity with their church leadership and are reviled by the realities that have come out and been shown out into the public space. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that this, seeding of the narrative does is it provides the basis for expanded investigation here in the United States of these types of activities. Um, one of the things that came out with this particular lodge and these tunnel investigations that have now called a number of very high profile, <laughs> excuse me, citizen journalists up to New York, um, a number of very good anons from the, from the old days and citizen journalists, excuse me, that have come around just in recent uh, months and years. And it has put a lot of pressure on the idea of underground tunnels uh, moving children around and moving human beings around within our communities, at our community level, levels of control and, and, and the infrastructure that makes all of that possible. Um, this particular lodge was tied to a children's museum underground in an underground capacity. Yep. Uh, it was tied to a, a youth fellowship and education center at another part of the lodge that was 100 and some odd yards away. Um, and these tunnels actually went deeper. And they went down to a uh, sacrificial bath chamber, which is used in the Torah, uh, in, in the original inscriptions into the Torah, the original text, as, as needed to purify oneself before and after consuming a sacrificial meal. So these types of connections are showcasing to the mass populist space that there is a very present, powerful, evil, powerfully evil practice that goes on here right here at home, right here in our communities, right up the road from our children's museums, from our daycare centers, oftentimes tying into very large parishes uh, or church organizations. That's not to cast anyone in any particular light. It's just to state that there is infiltration across all of those groups, and that is a reality we need to accept. Um, and then we need to move into a more forward posture about, well, what do we do to find out the truth of this? How do we balance the right to privacy with the the um, the right to um, investigate large scale criminality and due process. Well, I think the, the linchpin has to be the people. If the people in their communities 
go out and investigate these types of things and they find other Shabbat style situations, it is incumbent upon them to A, get the word out and B, involve judiciary and law enforcement due process powers that can move ahead and, and, and help to transform our community in a better way. And I understand there's a great deal of capture in law enforcement by these same uh, vectors and channels. And so there's, there's, you know, a lot of failure to start that happens in those processes. I acknowledge that. But keeping the pressure up and keeping the public awareness campaign very lit and very on fire is how we change that. It's how we root these things out. It's how we put pressure on other Lubavitch lodges or on different parishes uh, around the United States that have been accused of these types of activities or different church organizations. You know, it's how we put pressure on them to highlight and distance themselves, the good from the bad, the wheat from the chaff, and they will do so. Um, and it w- and with that, we have clarity to move forward in that community way to to investigate these things. So that's, you know, I look at this entire thing, Patriot, as kinetic. It's a kinetic operation. It's a narrative operation. It's a 5D chess move. It's a it's a counterintelligence seed that came out online into the narrative space. This was completely by design. But it does move forward with a real purpose, which is to save the children. And everybody wants that. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. All right. Well, let's switch gears here a little bit. Let's talk about Plandemic 2.0. We saw the World Economic Forum met recently in Davos, and they've been telling the world to prepare for disease X. And my understanding is that this would be Marburg. And I think you know quite a bit about that. You've talked a lot about uh, another pandemic. I remember you took a lot of heat when you first uh, started talking about that on your files quite some time ago. But it looks like they're preparing to run the same basic playbook ahead of the 2024 election. And, you know, again, like I mentioned, Marburg, this a lot of people are speculating this could be a mixture, Marburg with smallpox, this disease X. Uh, I'd like to get your take on that. But the narrative is quite obvious, as is the timeline of the rollout ahead of the next election cycle. And not only that, we saw Putin come out recently and announce to everyone that the 2020 election was stolen using mail-in ballots, which, of course, we all know. And now this new pathogen release is going to provide the same pretext for them to attempt to do this again. So what is your take on this push for Plandemic 2.0 at this stage of the game? I know you've talked about it several times in the past, but now that we're here at the end of January uh, 2024, we're heading into the the same exact timeline as when we uh, experienced COVID-19. Uh, and if they do play this card, how the people are going to respond this time? I'm very curious to hear your take on that. Well, you know, as far as people responding, I can I can assure you that the temperament of the nation is not good. Um, there will be, I think, a great deal of patience exercised. And I think patriots out there are probably going to have to uh, take 10 seconds and quite a few deep breaths if something like this does occur. And I mean that from a longitudinal stance. Do that for several days or even a week or two if you have to. Uh, because maintaining cool and calm under fire and under pressure from the enemy is the only way that you win the day. Um, but the vast majority of the population, I think, is sick of the the idea of the pandemic. We have the reuptake on the kill shots at less than two percent, uh, which tells me that, you know, regardless of your political ideology, everybody has been affected by these shots. Nobody wants to talk about it publicly, but everyone sort of realizes that there's much more nefariousness at play. And the coordinated suppression of that particular narrative is very telling. And so a reattempt at something like that is likely to ignite a great deal of fear and, and a great deal of reactivity. 
So guarding one's heart and one's mind is really important in this process. Now, my thoughts on how it's going to occur, I talked a little bit about that, I think, in file 67, but I initially broached the idea of a pandemic 2.0 as a play card in this back in file 27. Um, the, the idea that they're going to deviate from a known playbook when they are so on display and we like to believe are in the middle in some regards of a submission deal where they have to carry forth a particular narrative. I think it's, it's intellectually immature to think that they're not going to do that. It's one of the fastest ways that you can catalyze the entire population's consciousness into uh, a really averse, resistant state with the, um, with the government itself in mind, right? And we have to remember not to take that aversion and point it at one another because you're going to have that segment of the population, as Q talks about, that they're never going to come around regardless of the truth that's presented to them. So accept that with them, but acknowledge that we are the vast, vast majority, right? 2% uptake means that 98% of us are on the same page with resisting pharma and, and understanding that there is a much larger plan here that's not being communicated honestly. Mm-hmm. Um, this process, I think, is going to play out in coordination with the Parisian Olympics, which is June and July. Uh, which ostensibly, uh, based on our discussion, our hypothesis just a moment ago about a potential review period for the Pentagon and the evidence presented during the Trump trials, would be concluding right about that same time. Uh, the Parisian Olympics are a water sport that's going to happen in the summer of 2024 in Paris. Um, and France was the last uh, major nation that we uh, saw here in, in here in the Western world that was the epicenter of a great exportation of of virulent pathogen uh, into the Western civilization that caused a, a, a lot of significant uh, actual damage, death and destruction. And, I, and they love their symbolism. And I, and I can see this happening very easily. Marburg is a, a hemorrhagic fever style virus. It's the best candidate for what a claim for a new pandemic is going to be because the Department of Health and Human Services has already spent five hundred million dollars in preparation, excuse me, $5 million and then a separate $500,000 grant, I apologize, um, in preparation for a Marburg outbreak and a Marburg epidemic. And they're actually preparing, if you can believe it or not, for a zombie apocalypse. Um, Because one of the things that is present within the the suggestions from FEMA about the preparations occurring with this are that a hemorrhagic fever that is particularly corrosive to the frontal lobe of human beings uh, which would be where rationale, cognition, and reason happens, is a likely candidate for a, the next pathogenic event. So Marburg, being a, in the hemorrhagic fever class and having already been selected by different emergency bureaucratic agencies as uh, a good candidate uh, for a pandemic event that actually does scare people, we have to appreciate how Marburg is transmitted. Uh, Marburg is transmissible primarily through bodily fluids. You need skin-to-skin contact or you need contact with the fluids of someone that is infected. And those mucosal membranes in the ears, the skin, the nose, the eyes, and the mouth are the best uh, permeable membranes to get that that type of transmissibility uh, really amped up and strong. So if you stick a a pathogen that is in uh, that is transmissible primarily in fluid or through fluids, and you put it in an aqueous medium, which is water, right, aquatic water sports, um, and then you stick everyone's eyes, nose, ears, and mouth into that water as well, which you can't swim competitively without doing, you have the perfect setup for a super spreader event that's in that type of vein. Uh, and it would come right along, I think, with the time frame to um, you know, interfere with that presidential election cycle, but also to distract from or maybe provide the pretext for a global emergency 
that tries to distract from the fact that the military forces of the United States have the wrong guy in charge. Mm-hmm. Um, and with that event, you would also see activation of that pandemic preparedness and response treaty, which would dissolve uh, U.S. Uh, public health sovereignty and would place it at the direct behest of the WHO. Mm-hmm. So this could be the event. This could be, you know, the one for the ages, if you will, that provokes a true military patriotic coup here in the Western world. Because if you have those health health authorities at the at the World Health Organization at that globalist level deploying policy right down to the community levers of power in all of their member nations and nation states, you're essentially going to mandate a biological weapon vaccination into the entire into the arms of the entire population of humanity, or you're going to starve them to death. That's basically the attitude that they've taken at the World Economic Forum level. All we have to do is look at their rhetoric and we can appreciate that that is the end goal here. So if something like that occurs right around the time of our July 4th holidays, right around the time that we would be understanding here at home that our military has the wrong person in charge and we've been living under a fraudulent administration and none of this should have even happened to begin with. And then you add that to the powder keg. That is all the justification I think patriot actors and military forces everywhere would need to move into some sort of affirmative action to avoid the collapse of civilization itself. I completely agree with you. Well, let's talk a little bit about a related topic which is the accelerated censorship initiatives that we've been seeing. And this is along the lines, uh, the same lines of these desperate attempts to steal the election, which, quite frankly, I, I doubt is going to happen, at least under normal circumstances. But the accelerated censorship has really hit like a turbocharged phase, in my opinion. We've seen, and certainly this is amidst the backdrop of the Epstein document releases we had a couple of weeks ago, Google came out, they updated their terms of service to include moderation of quote-unquote sensitive events, and uh, that's putting it mildly, given uh, what we know about what's coming. And not only that, a- across the pond, we've got in Ireland, uh, it's it's a very, very draconian. It's getting worse and worse in Ireland by the day. These hate speech laws that they're floating would make possession and sharing memes a criminal offense, literally. And they're, uh, I mean, they're doing everything that they can to lock us down informationally as well as socially, which, of course, is was tied into our previous uh, question there about the pandemic 2.0 ahead of this imminent disclosure. So I, I'm curious to hear your take on all of these defensive measures, I guess, is a way to put it uh, by the deep state and the degree to which the cabal can expect to effectively shut down the conversation as all of this damning evidence comes out and your overall viewpoint on what these accelerated censorship initiatives indicate to you? Well, I mean, they indicate fear at the end of the day, and that's that's always true in, in human events, right? If we if one side seeks to shut down information, it can only be because that side fears what may come from that information, whether that fear is justifiable or not. And that's really the philosophical discussion of this era in mankind right now. What is allowable and what is not allowable at a societal level? And how do we balance individual rights and exp- of, of expression uh, with the right to be safe, secure and happy in society and have that life, liberty uh, and pursuit of happiness? Right. Safety, I guess, isn't a guarantee, but it's one of those components that comes along with life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. So the censorship campaigns are are entirely based on fear, and I think the fear is actually deeper than we might appreciate. There have been a number of defections and submissions that have occurred to the White Hat Alliance, this patriotic movement of military forces around the world, 
over the, the past few months that have been extremely significant. Queen Margaret of Denmark is a very powerful one. Uh, the submission of King Charles, another powerful one coming up, I think actually occurring in real time right now based on the narratives that we've seen. And then the recent submission of Lloyd Austin um, and whatever actionable intelligence that human being was able to bring to the fight against the biological you know, dark money terrorism complex around the rest of the planet. These are very powerful movements of high-level individuals within these complexes that threaten the whole. They threaten the beast. And the beast itself is that globalist agenda at the very top, right? That transnational elitist agenda. And you have mules, quite frankly, in different areas of society that are switching sides and walking away. They're saying no more. They've been given a way out. A Q uses the phrase strings cut. So in this process, the desperation then to keep control of the public understanding and the public narrative is the only way that they come out on top with any sort of safety and security into their future, which is their goal. They recognize this is an existential crisis. Uh, they recognize that the awakening of the population of mankind simultaneously with such virulence in the last 36 months has been uh, categorically bad for them and for their agenda. Um, and really, the gloves, I think, are off at this point where they're going to attempt to control information so that they can try and destabilize us back into controllable societies again, which references all of the events that are yet before us here for 2024. This will be an epic and historic year. Um, in this process, you're going to see, <laughs> excuse me, a number of people that have not been politically, I think, idealistic at various points and certainly not outspoken about it, begin to take to the public stage and encourage whatever followings they have to begin to pick a side. You're either for humanity and for you know, liberty and freedom and the continuation of Western civilization or you're not. Right. And that's a pretty basic component of the human experience. Are, are you uh, going to be part of humanity or do you wish to see humanity harmed? Right. Mm -hmm. So. Anyway, coming back to this entire discussion about the censorship, I think it's absolutely to try and and provide cover to move us through those events and, and shake us back down into that uh, controllable situation. And you've got President Trump elevating the rhetoric more and more and more uh, in recent days, discussing that he will prevent CBDCs from ever being implemented here in the United States of America. Uh, you can't put your finger any more in the eye of the Federal Reserve monster than that. Because that is their you know, overarching goal. That is their ICE-9 protocol agenda. Um, and they've already begun a lot of these protocols at that international level. And the censorship is necessary to hide all of this. So as far as whether they're going to be able to shut down the narrative, I don't think so. Uh, you have the Irish people that are very clever. And there's a lot of, without giving too, too much information away in my research, there's a lot of countermeasures that are being deployed over there by the citizenry that are very effective against that particular agenda. The same is true, I think, here at home in the United States. And we have, you know, literally millions of citizen journalists now around the world, not just a few hundred thousand that can be easily controlled, manipulated or taken out. And so the idea that this genie is ever going back into the bottle, the only way that you would be able to really do that with any significance would be to shut the Internet down. And I think we'll see that come in this process, probably you know, midsummer to late summer. Um, that's that's just an estimate based on how things seem to be playing out longitudinally and how they have over the last couple of years. I could be a little bit off on that, um, but eventually that will be the only way uh, that they will be able to prevent the passage and the, and the flow of information. And by then, the entire jig is up and we would be entering into, I think, a new world revolutionary phase. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Well, you know, let's talk a little bit about. Uh, a couple of names that have come up in our conversation. Well, actually, I should say one name that came up, which was Jamie Dimon. And we've also talked about the World Economic Forum. 
And I think I want to ask you a little bit about Javier Malay, who recently, I mean, I, I, I think I may have mentioned that uh, the World Economic Forum met recently in one of my previous questions in Davos, and he absolutely eviscerated collectivism right in the belly of the beast. And this is a man who has been talking about Malay, of course. He's been the, the focal point of the truth community in a lot of ways since or one of the focal points since he won the Argentinian election. And so many clips of his speeches have gone viral, I think, for good reason. Uh, there are a lot of folks out there who were questioning his allegiance, given his ties to the World Economic Forum. But this speech that he gave appeared to me to be very strong evidence of his true character. And I think we should also mention, as a part of our analysis of Malay, and then we can maybe get to Jamie Dimon in a moment. I don't want to tie too much into one question. I have a bad habit of doing that. Uh, but as far as Malay is concerned, uh, his refusal to join BRICS has raised a lot of questions as well, considering you know, the Russian-Chinese-led uh, trade union that's spearheading the de-dollarization process to isolate and eliminate the fiat petrodollar. So let's start with uh, Malay's speech and your overall viewpoint on him his ties to the World Economic Forum, and his policy of steering clear of BRICS. What do you make of all that? You know, Javier Millet is an enigma, and he's one that I'm having a difficult time pinning down one way or another. There are serious suggestions on the one hand that we have a controlled opposition plant, quite frankly, that has been moved into the political scene. And there are serious suggestions on the other hand that we have a guy who's just a little unhinged, but not acting at the behest of any broader agenda, who has come into the fore and is unwilling to make what he believes to be excessive changes too quickly. And I think tying that difference together and finding the balance is really, really hard. Um, that being said, Javier Millet came out at the World Economic Forum and discussed the assault upon Western civilization, which is exactly the globalist agenda. Uh, he discussed the financial manipulation of the world and the lie of socialism and the lie of you know globalism. And I thought that was very fascinating and interesting. Um, but at the same time, he chose for his first foreign visit, the Shabbat Lubavitch Lodge in New York City, uh, right around the times that the, the time that those events were first occurring. Uh, mm -hmm. And he came as an acolyte to the faith. And that's not to suggest anything, you know, negative about uh, Mr. Millay, but it is to say that. Um, I find the timing of that particular journey, you know, a little uh, a little bit interesting. Um, one of the things that he did in Argentina post-election was to visit the grave site of Menachem Schneerson, uh, the same rabbi, uh, the chief rabbi formerly of the Shabbat Lubavitch that met with um, one Bill Gates in the mid 1990s. Mm. And so, you know, I look at the associations and I think to myself, well, this is an example of uh, a case where we really have to pay attention to the actions. Right. Everyone. Uh, in the beginning, when Trump endorsed Speaker McCarthy, everyone took that as a sign of uh, a positive thing. Everyone took that as a uh, and I, you know, it's sort of analogous to Trump placing his trust in McCarthy at the at the highest level. And that I don't think is necessarily true. What we saw highlighted out, excuse me, was the uh, unbelievable uh, levels of sort of, you know, duplicativeness that came from president uh, from Speaker McCarthy and the incredible amount, I think, of pandering and um, hemming and hawing and uh, you know, smithing us to death, but accomplishing nothing uh, that really occurs at that lever of power here in, in bureaucracy. And this is how agendas are stonewalled. And this is how essentially that you throw the game 
Uh, you throw the game to the other side by just acquiescing in your own intellectual discourse, but not actually getting anything accomplished. So Trump highlighted McCarthy in that way. And then, of course, we saw McCarthy ousted after less than a year, one of the shortest tenureships of, of speakership in American history. Um, and, and I think that's a positive sign. But that but that, you know, I guess. That's what I'm describing is that process of unearthing what McCarthy was about and how that side of the Republican Party was also captured and controlled, but in more of a lethargic way. Um, I think that same analytical process has to be applied here to Malay, and we've just not had enough time post-election to really gauge uh, the character of the man and where he's willing to take the Argentinian people. That's a very fair assessment. I have to agree with you, and I also have to agree that it's it's difficult for a lot of folks out there to navigate those individuals who Trump comes out and publicly endorses, because like you say, it, it certainly signals that he is uh, in approval of that person or trusts that person. And so often, I mean, ever since the beginning of Trump's tenure, his first, uh, first term in office, we saw a pattern play out where he brought in all of these very questionable individuals. And what ended up happening at the end was that they got exposed. So is this yet another example of that? I guess the jury is still out in a lot of ways on on Javier Malay. Well, I also brought up uh, Jamie Dimon and, uh, you know, not necessarily directly connected to Javier Malay per se, uh, but certainly tied into the the larger question about the World Economic Forum and Wall Street and this this fundamental change that we are witnessing play out uh, day by day. It's getting more and more obvious as far as I'm concerned that the White Hats are indeed in control. And when Jamie Dimon came out, on I think it was CNBC or NBC it was one of the uh, one of the mainstream media networks very publicly and supported MAGA and certainly he he could have used as far as all of us are concerned stronger language to express his support for all of us and for Trump but he came out and he said that Trump was right about a lot of things he supported the MAGA movement and just did this incredible shift uh, about face I guess you might say. Uh, and it's very curious to me, given J.P. Morgan's relationship with Epstein and really the, the J.P. Morgan as a as a whole being the the big Wall Street bank that is uh, involved in just about every aspect of the funding and the money laundering that goes on within the cabal. And now that the floodgates are starting to open, uh, it's very interesting to me that Jamie Dimon came out and made these statements. I want to hear your take on that. Well, I find it fascinating because every time we get on air, we talk a lot about the content and upcoming files. And Jamie Dimon's behavior is of very interesting, notable consequence. Um, without going into the, the background of the man, which itself is sort of you know scattered on both sides, um, I find it fascinating that we have an individual who is now in charge of this organization uh, at a time where this organization is being exposed for its involvement in essentially financing world terrorism. Uh, crimes against humanity, various acts of biological terrorism, uh, different activities that Jeffrey Epstein undertook and projects that he undertook, which generated significant profits that were not necessarily trafficking, uh, but that were highly illegal. Right. We saw his account. I think they reported it was flagged over half a dozen times, <laughs> excuse me, by Chase uh, fraud management. And it was never you know, J.P. Morgan Chase. And it was never fully acted upon by the leadership at that time. And so here we have Jamie Dimon who has you know, a couple of times in the last couple of years pointed out that inflation is not transitory. It is here to stay. Um, the, managing, the management policies financially of this group here running the country are not good. 
this is a guy that has a lot of respect in the financial field. He has a lot of respect from company, mid-level executives, corporate executives that are not beholden to some agenda that maybe they're just acting on behalf of their bosses, but they are, um, they are awake to the idea that they can be an autonomous company, right? If that makes any sense. I know my wording isn't exactly the, the best there, but it, it he's going to appeal to a large class of the population that could be an asset to we the people if they had the proper context of you know for discussion. Um, but what's really what really fascinates me about Jamie Dimon is the timing, and we're moving into the into this rhetoric season with this Davos forum that happened in, in you know 2024 January of 2024 but now we're seeing the endorsement of MAGA now we're seeing the appreciation for Trump we're, we're sort of intellectually hinting at the fact that we approve of Trump um, and that we think that a, a, a society first organ you know orientation really is a decent way to operate it's a good thing for business it's a good thing for money it's a good thing for profits all of this sort of thing and so now we have a guy that is dismantling um, the credibility of the organization as a globalist entity and is seeking to uh, sort of save face or change face of that organization with the broader swath of, I think, the population of the United States of America, you know, publicly at that. And, and really the broader swath of we the people patriots worldwide is also included because this is happening in a worldwide global event. So, you know, Q tells us that infiltration goes both ways. If you were going to infiltrate this cabal, right. knowing the depth and knowing the involvement of J.P. Morgan specifically in the crippling of the U.S. financial uh, infrastructure and the usurpation of our national sovereignty and, and the complete. I mean, it's, it's a, a, you need a different word to describe it. Treason just isn't good enough. Um, what J.P. Morgan Chase and his cronies actually were able to accomplish here in the United States of America, that would be a great place to put a white hat plant. Um, if you were going to go in and cripple an organization from the inside out and then showcase it all to the world at the same time that they do nothing but fund criminal activity, um, this would be the kind of person that you would want in place, right? Someone who does not have political loyalties one way or another is not going to ignite some sort of ideological discussion just based on the fact that they're opening their mouth, but, but that they can communicate intellectually, intelligently, and, and and purposefully about this financial world that is so very important for people to understand, because how we got into this mess will prevent us knowing how that happened, will prevent us uh, from ever falling into this mess again. And Jimmy Diamond's initials are J.D. Um, President Trump talks all the time about we are a nation of laws. We are a nation of law and order. Right. President Trump leveraged the power of the pen that Q referenced to put into place a number of executive orders that Q also referenced in accordance with U.S. code and in accordance with U.S. law. And a law degree is a J.D. degree, a Juris Doctorate degree. So the symbolism is not lost on me in that particular discussion. Um, I find it. And, and again, this isn't endorsing Mr. Diamond. I'm not saying anything you know, affirmative for him. And I'm not saying anything negative or, or, you know, constraining against him. What I'm saying is that the idea that this narrative activation from an individual with such influence in the worldwide financial community and worldwide financial markets who happens to be sitting very near the top of one of the chief financial organizations behind worldwide organized crime is praising MAGA. I find this absolutely brilliant. I couldn't agree more. Absolutely. It, it really is fascinating. And I'm glad to hear that yet again, I brought up another topic that's going to be in your next file. I uh, I kind of take a little bit of pride in that at this point, SG. 
but uh, you know, it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't be an interview with uh, Patriot and SG if we didn't switch gears and talk about the geopolitical landscape. So why don't we do that? Uh, there's been a lot that has transpired. Certainly, I can't cover all of it in the in the framing of my question, but in virtually every region of the world, we can see rapid escalation toward kinetic confrontation. The Pacific Rim, which you and I have discussed at length in the past, is continuing to heat up. Uh, we've got the attacks on the, the Houthis in Yemen in response to all of these uh, Red Sea shipping vessel strikes that have become a major focal point. The war is continuing to rage in Israel. Belarus created a doctrine for the first time in history for the use of nuclear weapons. Zelensky is increasingly desperate. And from what I understand, is attempting to have Switzerland broker a peace deal with Russia. We've got Israel announcing that Iran is now a legitimate military target. And we also heard that NATO just announced the mobilization of 90,000 troops for, quote unquote, military exercises. We all know what that means. Now, many of us, of course, have long anticipated a global conflagration, quote unquote, pre uh, precipice moment, excuse me, that Q referred to in many posts. And I think it was uh, drop 4407 says, uh, quote, it's important to understand only at the precipice moment of destruction will people find the will to change. So SG, in an, your analysis of all of these developments in the Middle East, the Pacific Rim, Ukraine, all over the world, uh, what is your what is your assessment of the recent geopolitical maneuvering towards World War III? Because that's that seems to be the direction we're headed. And how do the White Hats plan on incorporating all of these events into their overall strategy, which is this precipice moment? Um, you know, this this is a tall question, Patriot. I'm not sure that I'm overly qualified to analyze it, but I'll I'll do my best. The setup strategically for World War III around the world could not be more obvious, in my opinion. Um, you've got NATO positioning itself clearly for conflict. Berlin has now leaked supposedly a document from the German Ministry of Defense, which discusses a planned Russian attack on NATO states, which almost certainly means that they're going to false flag attack themselves and blame Russia. Um, you've got the Finland military that has closed the entirety of the border with Russia, and that's a significant border. Um, you've got the Baltic states that are warning that a Belarusian false flag is being planned on their soil. And Minsk in Belarus is saying that the Lithuanian states or excuse me, the, that Lithuania and uh, Latvia in, in particular are uh, involved in, in cahoots, essentially, with the U.S. intelligence agencies and various Western powers uh, to conduct a false flag operation on the Belarusian border. Ostensibly, the target of such an operation would be the, uh, the Suwalki Gap, which is a great um, a great place to start, you know, a false flag event, any, any type of topographical gap that provides uh, mountainous cover, which prevents uh, good satellite resolution. Right. That's a great place to start those things. So the the obviousness of the setup in Europe is is palatable at this point to the point where other nation states like Hungary are beginning to um, position themselves in a way to essentially disempower NATO. Um, Turkey has already essentially said that NATO is a hollow alliance. Erdogan came out and said something to that effect uh, early on in the, in the Israel conflict when a number of the NATO state leaders went to Jerusalem and to Tel Aviv, but not a single one of them asked to be taken down to Gaza to see what was actually occurring. And Erdogan uh, pointed that out. And, you know, despite your opinions of the man, I'm not necessarily a big Erdogan fan or supporter. I think he's a little bit rigid and a little bit harsh. Um, but I think that he had a fair assessment of the situation at that time. 
So the and and you know it's interesting that we talked a little bit about Erdogan and Turkey because we just saw a massive uh, armament deal approved here in the United States to send F-16s to Turkey. Um, Turkey has already come out and, and said militarily that they plan to expand cross-border operations, that they're likely to go into what is currently Iraqi Kurdistan, and that they will occupy a portion of the northern uh, desert in Iraq. It's also very possible that we see them go down and essentially, essentially help out Damascus as a result of the escalation between uh, the Lebanese conflict and the Syrian um, countryside, the Golan Heights, right, that area of the world, and Israel's um, territorial ambitions, which have always been to get the Golan, um, and this, and 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 you know, and and to maintain control to move deeper into Syria. So these sorts of things, right, the the historic record, the historic picture informs what's occurring right now. Um, I think that we are going to see a precipice event in the form of the the whole world being temporarily engulfed in conflict for a period of time. Uh, and I think the reason you're going to see that is because a tremendous amount of this intelligence community's ability to resist planet-wide change comes from their ability to hide personnel and assets and uh, safe zones and financial feeder arms everywhere in the world, right? The Iraqi government has essentially been a pauper of the U.S. Federal Reserve since 2003, mm-hmm. and they just announced recently that they were freed. And right at the same time or within a couple of days of them announcing their uh, freedom and no longer accepting the U.S. dollar in transactions. We saw a number of ballistic missile strikes into northern Iraq by Iran on known U.S. bases and known U.S. regional con- you know, control areas. So, you know, this reeks of an unearthing, if you will, of the military industrial complex and that and that locus of control that it has around the world. Uh, if you're the ultimate authority at the top, you don't go everywhere and handle things personally. You stick in uh, governors, you stick in you know regents. Um, premiers, things like that. You prop up different controllers in different areas and warlords within uh, NATO military brass are, you know, just as just as uh, guilty in those intelligence community crimes against humanity, if you will, as as the controllers themselves are. So I think you're going to see an expansion of operations, quite frankly, uh, in the Middle East. I think you're going to see the Ottoman Turks move down through Syria in an effort to reinforce Damascus after a massive Israeli attack on the city of Damascus. I think that that's going to result in an Arab coalition igniting itself into action right about the same time, which which will put pressure on Israel from multiple sides. And ultimately, Patriot, I think that you're going to see Tel Aviv occupied by this coalition before this process is over. Mm-hmm. Um, the Mossad locus of power and control in the world goes very deep. And that particular locus has a number of feeler arms into finance, into worldwide corporate uh uh, operations into the passage of money from the Asian sector markets through the Middle East and into Europe. Uh, people wouldn't believe how interconnected the Israeli system in particular is with the worldwide SWIFT system, uh, far more connected and far more uh, having far more control over the system's autonomy itself than any of the Middle Eastern or African nations, uh, any of the other ones combined. And so and, you know, we haven't even talked about the fact that Israel has a number of biological terrorism laboratories operating right there in Jerusalem, right there in Haifa, right there in Tel Aviv, which have been building Arab genomic targeted pathogens since the late 1990s. There was an article from CNBC, of all places, in 1998 that showcased that the Israeli government had been formally accused by the scientific community of developing genomic weapons that were targeted at the surrounding Arab states, but that would not harm 
the population of the Jewish people within the Israeli state, right? And and so these types of imbalances have been occurring at the nation state level, and none of we the people have been aware of this. And so we have to acknowledge that even though we are now aware of it, we still have to remove that. We still have to eliminate those threats. And I don't think that some of these threats in, in that area of the world uh, and primarily emanating from that Mossad uh, intelligence governmental level level of control in Israel. I don't think these threats are going to be able to be um, removed without some sort of military intervention. So a World War Three scenario, I think, is is a very possible um, brief transit that we go through in this period of time. But President Trump has repeatedly said, "I will prevent World War Three. I will stop World War Three. Mm-hmm. So this could tie into um, you know that same. Time frame in our hypothetical discussion here, the same sort of time frame that would tie into the trial, right? And how that deliberation would have to play out for the U.S. military here domestically, how that sort of coordinated pandemic attempt uh, would begin to play out midsummer. And honestly, if we appreciate the recruitment goal for the Russian military uh, by June of 2024, their goal is to train 200,000 more recruits after activating a reserve component last year of more than 225,000 already trained. Uh, components of the of the regular services. And so the period of time from January to June is what they have given themselves to accomplish with that uh, reserve activation, which would put them in a preparation footing for a possible World War Three scare event by midsummer. Uh, so all of this seems to be looking at a possible head, you know, from Memorial Day up through the July 4th holiday, perhaps through August. And Q has told us, you know, a couple of times, I think that August is traditionally a very hot Month And we've seen that happen every August from 2020 till now, some massive event, some massive exposure, some massive change in the narrative space uh, that has formed that has fundamentally changed the discourse and the directionality of public consciousness here at home and abroad has occurred over the last three Augusts. So, you know, I know I'm rambling a little bit, but this this entire situation, again, is to accomplish a number of things. You have to remove the kinetic ability of the military intelligence community to unleash weapons of war. You have to remove the ability of them to finance themselves and the ability uh, of the Washington, D.C. central bank system to choke out other nations around the planet. And you have to move the consciousness forward in a great awakening capacity so that people are prepared to take back their governmental levers of power when it's all over. So this is a broad, broad ranging process. There's a lot of moving parts here at a worldwide level. And I think it's going to be very fascinating to see how it comes together, despite it being a bit scary. It's going to be very fascinating to see how it comes together at the other side of this and how we move forward beyond that election season in the fall and into next year. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And once again, you took my very tall question. You cut it right down to size. That was a brilliant answer. Well, there's a couple other subjects. I know we've been uh, going for a while here. A couple questions I want to uh, get your take on before we part ways until the next time. I wanted to ask you about the economic system. And uh, the fact that the petrodollar is dying, we know that BRICS has made its expansion public to include Saudi Arabia and the UAE and uh, Egypt and uh, Ethiopia. And I I can't remember the the last country, the name escapes me at the moment, but we saw the, the public announcement of the expansion of BRICS. We see that the Fed is doing everything they can to delay the inevitable by bolstering the treasury bond market at the expense of devaluing our currency. We know that since 1971, we've been party to a Ponzi scheme that detached us from the gold standard and has been using fiat to engage in commerce and trade ever since. And now we're at the point where we're increasing the debt to the tune of 500 billion every four to five months. And 
clearly they they can't pay out on all of their treasury bond obligations. As a matter of fact, Jim Willie recently forecasted that they have $7.5 trillion that they're on the hook in terms of uh, payouts, treasury bond payout obligations in 2024. And in his view, that could very likely be the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak, and perhaps result in the pause that Trump talks about. So I just wanted to kind of get your take on where we're at economically. Q told us that gold kills the Fed post 3393. Gold gold shall destroy the Fed. So I wanted to hear your perspective on this. Where are we economically? How close do you think we are to the wheels falling off? Honestly, Patriot, I don't think we've ever been closer, and that includes 1929. Um, the wheels falling off of this beast worldwide, I think, have already happened. We're just waiting for the cart to hit the ground. Um, <laughs> yeah. The the six of the nine, so that's 67, 66, 67 percent of the world's largest oil producing nations have declared that in 2024 they will no longer trade. Uh, they will no longer accept payment for their resources in a currency that is not backed by some sort of standard of value, some sort of standard of measure. Well, that naturally sidelines the U.S. dollar and all other vectors around the planet that the U.S. central banking uh, uh, heist cartel could utilize to attempt to pay for that oil and keep the machine going and keep the petrodollar nice and strong and powerful. In so doing, they have completely decimated the petrodollar's ability to manipulate virtually any worldwide energy market with, with any significance moving forward. And those reverberations have not yet hit North American markets, but they are coming. Um, the Iraqi government declared as of 2024, January 1, that they would no longer do any transactions internally to include exchange uh, with U.S. dollars into U.S. dollars. They would exchange your dollars into their local currency, but they would not exchange something like euros or, or pounds or anything like that for locally available dollars. You can only get Iraqi currency now in Iraq. Um this is another you know, significant arm that ties back into that, that, that cutting off of the energy markets because Iraq's number one export is liquefied natural gas and crude oil, the, the, two, the top two. So that, that particular account that was set up with the Federal Reserve back in 2003 and which paid into that account uh, over the last 21 years has now been essentially cut off. It's no longer active. The account is closed. That was a major income arm for the central bank system uh, to allow the prop up of that petrodollar. Excuse me. So when you put this background against a couple of other very important factors, you can see how weak and how dangerously precarious the dollar situation is worldwide. Um, the events now going on in the Pacific region are going to lead to some sort of open conflict. We already know that. President Trump told us that in September of 2022 that Taiwan and China would be at war before this process is over. That war may be very short-lived, considering that Taiwan is a you know, relatively small island, um, but it is going to happen before this process is over. That will obliterate the semiconductor market overnight here in the United States. You're talking about a massive sagging of value, a massive sell-off of Silicon Valley, big tech, and the big seven, which prop up the overall value of the, of the NASDAQ stock sector itself, right? Um, so, you know, Apple... Um, Facebook, YouTube, uh, uh, Alphabet, things of that. Well, Alphabet's own, you know, YouTube's owned by Alphabet, but these companies, right, are affected by these events in the Pacific in a very enormous way. The Japanese economy holds a tremendous amount of debt management for the U.S. commercial manufacturing sector. Uh, companies like Mitsubishi, Toyota, Nissan, uh, a, a great deal of their component operations happen here in the United States of America. 
Uh, how will those operations and those manufacturing components, right, those arms of economic power from Japan, primarily emanating from Japan, how will they respond to a Pacific region conflict? Um, I can I can foresee a situation where economic trade would be very, uh, very heavily infringed infringed upon and perhaps even not possible for a period of time as the waterways transiting the Pacific Ocean become no longer safe. <laughs> Excuse me. So. The combination of these events, along with the fact that the Chinese government is by far and away the largest holder of U.S. Treasury bonds in the world, this spells a disastrous scenario, I think, for the U.S. dollar moving forward if any sort of escalation of conflict should occur. And that, ironically, is exactly what the globalists need because it's the only way that they avoid the mass awakening, which is already out of their control. So there it's, there it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation. You might as well go out in the, in the most bravado uh, with the most um, – uh, fireworks, if you will, and pomp and circumstance possible because you are stepping out of the door at the end of this process. Um, the U.S. financial markets will be rocked, I think, by the events that are to come here in the coming weeks and months. President Trump told us uh, in an interview with CNN that the U.S. economy was very likely to crash this year. As a matter of fact, he said he hoped that it did prior to his inauguration in 2025 because he doesn't want to be another, quote, Herbert Hoover, uh, who was the overseer of the beginning of the Great Depression. So a stock market crash sort of implied in the message, the overall message. And you have to read into the messages and appreciate what's actually being conveyed here, right? Um, the collapse of those markets also collapses the ability of the U.S. dollar worldwide to fund mercenary militarized activity. Uh, if you're a paramilitary organization on the African subcontinent and you can no longer be paid, why go to work? Um, the same is true of biological terrorism right around the planet, except for those at the very highest level, levels of power and control in those arenas that stand to be exposed and completely destroyed as a result of those exposures, um, which has to occur in this process also. So this is a multifaceted, multi-domain operation that is pinching the U.S. dollar out of worldwide malfeasance and out of the position where it can stranglehold uh, and provide the basis for manipulation and worldwide crime, but also in a way that uh, showcases the uh, agenda of that totalitarian central bank system, uh, which will compel, I think, the public discussion into the idea, which the Nazis and patriots have been highlighting for a long time, that we need a system that is essentially a very, very corruption proofed and, and potentially even corruption free. And the only way to do that is a return to an asset, uh, an asset backed currency. Absolutely. OK, well, SG, I did have another question for you, but I, I want to respect your time and give you the opportunity to maybe leave us with some final thoughts. There's, I literally have questions I could go all day long to pick your brain on these things. But uh, this has been an amazing discussion. I am just so unbelievably Honored to have you on my program and to have you here to break all of this down for my audience. You're you're truly gifted in your ability to uh, to analyze and to explain to help everybody make sense of all of this craziness that's going on in the world. So I thank you, my friend. Can you leave us with some final thoughts about uh, your headspace, your spiritual state as we enter into what we described is going to be probably the most significant life changing year that we've ever experienced? I'm pumped. Um, at the end of the day, we've all been in training for this moment, and this is our moment. This is our shining moment to keep humanity together. These events have to occur. We have to remove the Federal Reserve petroserpent dollar. We have to destroy the worldwide SWIFT system's ability to steal, kill, and destroy uh, across every nation-state boundary line in the world. We have to eliminate and annihilate child trafficking and human trafficking networks wherever we may find them. 
And we have to administer proper justice and the rule of law for crimes that have been occurring to humanity for a very long time, but were most notably punctuated recently in the launch of that fake pandemic known as COVID-19. And so we're getting there. We're moving through this process. This is inevitably going to lead to reconcile and reckoning. This is going to lead to uh, an accountability that will reverberate for generations through the ages and will teach humanity, I think, a, a better way to govern and control our own societies. And it's also restoring, in a, in a great way, our spiritual identity, because there's only one reason a power complex so evil and so powerful at the top of society uh, which already ruled the world, there's only one reason that they would seek to assault our spiritual nature and wipe out nine and ten of us, and that's because of who we are. We are remarkably powerful, intelligent, and multi-dimensional beings. We have the ability to interface with the world around us in tangible ways that have been cut off through the poisoning of our air, food, and water over the last 175 to 200 years or so uh, here in the in the modern era. Um and so that that power and that connection to a, a creator implies a number of different things. One, we are created beings, which means there is a God and they just can't stand that they're not God. Um, there is a God and there is an almighty force of divine love and compassion and guidance, uh, spiritual guidance, right? That intuitive guidance that governs all of creation and really is, is even merciful enough to allow these um, uh, evil fools to exist in the ways and the, and the capacities that they do. So. You know, we look at that and we have to appreciate that we have a direct connection to that. And we're rediscovering that in the process of reclaiming our entire Earth. Nothing's more exciting to me than that, Patriot. I can't wait for when this process is over. I acknowledge the difficulty. I acknowledge the discomfort. My family is just as pinched out there as everyone else. I'm working sometimes 12-hour days. But you know what? At the end of the day, we're moving through a process to transform who we are as mankind, that's going to revolutionize our community discussions. It's going to provide great fervor and vigor for us to move ourselves into humanitarian projects to serve and help one another heal after this process is over. We're headed for a really beautiful world, but we have to hang with it and we have to know that that's coming. God has already won this. We just have to stick it out until the end. Oh, what a great note to end on. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't have said it better. SG, you are amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. Once again, I'm already looking forward to our next conversation and certainly uh, looking forward to your, your next file, as I always do. So thank you, everybody out there, for taking the time to listen. Make sure you check out the links in the description. And, of course, you can uh, find SG on uh, Rumble and True Social only. I'm, am I correct about that, SG? Are those your only uh, two spots, or are you on X as well now? I am officially on X as well, so there's okay. three... There's three authentic spots, the Rumble and the Truth Social that you mentioned a moment ago. And I can be found on X, formerly Twitter, at the handle V-T-H-E-Q News Patriot. Awesome. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back soon with another report. And until then, God bless and Godspeed. Patriot out.